pasar. The world is talking. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. There's no game that Civil War buffs like to play more than What If. Historians do the same thing. We just call it counterfactual history. Today on Civil War Talk Radio, we'll explore the king of counterfactual questions. What if the Confederacy had won? Our guest is Roger L. Ransom, author of The Confederate States of America, What Might Have Been. Join us on Civil War Talk Radio. Hotline. Please, my daughter, I think she might hurt herself. Okay, ma'am. Her arms and legs are moving in all different directions. Yeah. Ma'am, is that music I hear? Yeah, I put on the radio and then she just lost control. Ma'am, she might be trying to dance. What? Dancing, ma'am. No, 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 I've seen dancing and that's not it. The less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus, the quiet spring break campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina on a cloudy, blustery, rainy March afternoon in 2009. Uh, it's uh, the university's phone and office, but I'm not speaking for the university, nor will my guest speak for his current or former employer, I'm sure, nor, uh, n- nor do they speak for us. We are all on our own, as always, here at Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it's gloomy outside, and that means... It looks like there will be rainouts of this weekend's youth soccer, and my daughter's team will have to wait another week to play those those kids from elsewhere in the state. Uh, but we're not going to spend the hour talking about youth soccer as much as I would like to uh, week after week because I the feedback tells me that's not why people are tuning in to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, so we'll get to the uh, the housekeeping and move right along. A uh, thank you, as always, to those who have donated to the show. You can do that uh, through PayPal at civilwartr at aol.com. And the money is not tax deductible, but it is usually used for good purposes, like buying more books to read for more authors to interview on the show. Uh, there is also the new website, still in skeletal form, cwtr.org, and hopefully that will be developing uh, in the near future. If you have a chance to uh, uh, be in the same place I'm going to be during the Did Lincoln Own Slaves Bicentennial Tour, please uh, stop by and uh, say hello. The upcoming talks will be March 18th, uh, this uh, this very Wednesday at the Gross Point Historical Society in Gross Point Farms, Michigan, March 19th, Austin Civil War Roundtable, Austin, Texas, April 14th, the Loudoun County Civil War Roundtable, Leesburg, Virginia, April 25th, Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a big 
production with lots of other people. Uh, don't miss that if you can be in the area. The Bucks County Civil War Roundtable, May 5th, Doylestown, Pennsylvania. May 12th, Richmond, Virginia, for another Civil War Roundtable. Uh, just added May 16th, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, a uh, program that I'm just finding out about. I'll let you know more next week. Uh, possibly uh, another event in October, but that's still uh, being uh, set up now. And then October 22nd, the Rocky Mount, North Carolina, Dorsey Pender chapter of the Civil War Roundtable. Always uh, happy to see folks at any of these to uh, come up and chat about what you like and don't like about Civil War talk radio. And always feel free to let me know uh, what guests or you'd like to hear on the show, what topics, what uh, books you're interested in. Well, today we have uh, a, a book of extraordinary interest, and I am uh, delighted uh, to welcome as our guest on the show today one of the legends of American economic history, and uh, as we will find out before the hour is over, a, uh, an agent provocateur of Civil War history. Uh, his name is Roger L. Ransom, a uh, distinguished professor of history and economics at University of California, Riverside. Uh, Roger, are you there? I am indeed. Wonderful. Um, I'm really excited to have you uh, and grateful you've been able to join me on the show today. Uh, I read, uh, as every uh, undergraduate or graduate in history did at some point, of course, your your classic uh, book with uh, Richard Such, One Kind of Freedom, The Economic Consequences of Emancipation. Uh, read that many years ago, and uh, your reputation as one of the leaders in American economic history is, has long been secure. Um, but here you have written a book, uh, The Confederate States of America, What Might Have Been, that's quite different. Uh, be- before we jump into that, though, let me go back with you in, into recent history, the last few decades. Um, what uh, are, are you still at University of California? I just retired in June, but I still teach. I'm sitting in my office today looking out at a bright, sunny day in contrast to uh, apparently the way it is back there. Well, so, uh, well, congratulations on that. that that's uh, uh, a, a great milestone. Uh, how long have you been at, uh, at Riverside? Forty years. I came here in 1968 after a brief stay at the University of Virginia, uh, which, which I enjoyed, but uh, I'm a Westerner, and my roots brought me back home. So, uh, did, as I said, you, you've written some books that, that pretty much everyone in the field knows uh, knows well at some point. Certainly, one one kind of freedom. Well, is, well I think uh, one kind of freedom is the the, the seminal work that uh, Richard and I did. When uh, in what's unusual about my career, and this is why I'm a professor of history and economics, is that after 20 years in the economics department, I moved to the history department, and when I did that. I thought, gee, historians write books, and I'd better write a book as a historian to convince my colleagues that I really am a historian. And at that time, I wrote Conflict and Compromise, which is a book that a lot of people are familiar with. It's, it goes through, in particular, the details of the economics of slavery. And uh, it really is out of that book and the years of teaching Civil War here at Riverside uh, that the Confederate States of America uh, got its beginning. I mean, I point out that it goes back even further than that, but but in a way what I would have liked to have written even then was what if the South had won the Civil War. 
but uh, I decided I had some homework to do first. So I spent roughly 20 years doing my homework, and then in 2005, my counterfactual work finally came out, and I must say it, it was a lot of fun to write. Well, it, it's a lot of fun to read, and, and every listener to the show is going to, uh, those of you who haven't already read it, are going to dash out to their nearest bookstore and get a copy after the show today. The, um, the, the, the intersection of economics and history is obviously uh, a critical uh, point that has been neglected by both sides to their loss over the years, it would seem. But in Civil War history especially, you've got these controversies uh, involving economics where, where economists and historians have had something to say to each other. And I guess the most obvious one would be the economics of slavery. Yes. I, I, was, I had the good fortune. Timing is everything, you know, in academics is elsewhere. I had the good fortune to be coming out in an economics department at a time when a whole group of eminent people uh, were working on the question, uh, was slavery profitable? That's the way we always posed it back in those days. Mm-hmm. It included Robert Fogel, who won a Nobel Prize for it, and a, and a host of other people. And I had the good the good fortune, really, to be among the, the first of the economists who took up that question. And I think even today, that, more than anything else, is the place where economists have left a mark in American history that produced a really broad consensus. Today we really understand that those slave owners were making money. And that was not the case. If you go back before, really, the 1960s, everyone believed slavery probably wasn't profitable. Um, And I think that's a contribution that lies very much at the heart of the success of people like myself who have really made our, our reputation trying to point out the rather unfortunate consequences that Americans had managed to figure out over the course of a long period of time how to make a lot of money using slave labor. And it took a long time and a major war for us to to get rid of that habit. And, well, that, that, and one reason it was so hard to get rid of it is it was very profitable. And, and, I mean, the issue is not, not dead yet, um, no. <laughs> I, I, well, well, I, I'm thinking. I mean, Bill Freeling's recent book on the on secession argues uh, uh, using much the same evidence that the prices of slaves were going up dramatically in the late 1850s, and but you, you still hear, I would argue, ideologically based opposition uh, to the notion of slavery being profitable from those who uh, often take a neo-Confederate agenda and want to argue that. Uh, slavery was going to go away if the South had been left alone. They they would have abolished it themselves. Well, well, and I mean, I think in in a sense there there is a there's a point in which they're probably correct, and that is that in the first half of the 19th century or up to 1860, it's certainly true that what slave what slave owners were riding was a boom. Um, it was the cotton boom, and the cotton boom fed the slave boom. And as is, and, and it's in, in, a, in a strange way, it's much easier to explain now in, in the current situation than it was even five or ten years ago. In much the same way that the housing boom of the 1990s went into the 21st century, a lot of people rode that boom, made a lot of money at it, speculated, and a lot of that was going on in slavery too. The thing about slavery is it was tied to cotton. And the reason people can so confidently say that slavery would have gone away is we know from history that eventually the cotton boom did come to an end. And 
And when the cotton boom comes to an end, yeah, eventually slavery probably would have died out. It wouldn't have lasted forever. Uh, I think even the people who claim it was profitable in 1860, and I believe people thought it probably in much the same way people didn't anticipate the collapse of the housing market in 2007, 2008. They didn't expect a collapse, an immediate collapse of the slave prices and cotton prices. But as historians, we can say, well, it was going to happen. And so it was going to go away. But where the neo-Confederates, I think, have it wrong is that the people in 1860 who were contemplating what to do in the South of 1860, that wasn't their view. Their view wasn't that slavery was going to go away. And that's where I really differ from those who say, oh, the Civil War wasn't necessary because slavery was going to die out anyway. It well, might that, have died out anyway, in much the same way the housing boom was going to come to, the end, to an end at the end of the first decade of the 21st century. But people at the beginning of that period didn't think it was going to die out. They were riding the crest of the most profitable, one of the best years they ever had, which would be 1859. It was one of, that was one of the best harvests, both in terms of quantity and price, that the South ever enjoyed. And that's not a world that they think is, they don't see it as collapsing. You know, it, it's always easier to see in the rearview mirror, certainly. Exactly. But, but that yeah. brings up an interesting point. The, the first part of your book talks about uh, the, the first counterfactual question you examine is is whether the war was uh, the irrepressible conflict or whether it was brought about by the blundering generation of politicians. To right, it, historical it's, theories. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to address this whole question of slave profitability and 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 the question of war and uh, it it all gets linked up with the the extent to which the, it's it's easier after the fact sometimes to see these these things but there is certainly a strong argument that the war was irrepressible the the rhetoric of the time makes it sound that way and there's a there's a long are a lot of argument, and, and a lot of people who I respect, maybe Kenneth Stamp and others, who say, well, wait a minute, when you stop and think about it, the war doesn't make any sense. If, you, if you're just saying, in an economic sense, was it a good, was it smart for the Southerners to do this? But I think that if you look at the full trend of things, war may not have been inevitable. War almost never is inevitable. But secession was. An attempt at secession, I think, was inevitable. And this is because the the ideologies, the economic ideologies of the two it's sides. Partly economics. I mean, when I, when I published the book, I was on a, a talk radio show, and and uh, the fellow said, "Well, Doctor Ransom, you can you can tell me I'm smoking something I shouldn't be smoking, but isn't it true that that war wasn't about slavery? It was all about money." Uh, I said, well, you know, I can't speak for what you're smoking, but I can tell you that, in a sense, if you want to call it money, you can, but remember, half of the wealth of the South was in slaves. So it being about slavery and it being about money, to some extent, is two sides of the same coin. If, you, if you're one who really believes in economic interests, then fine, you can say, well, it's all about the money they had invested in slaves. If you're talking about a broader sense of protecting society and a whole structure of class and so forth, it was about that, too. But in either of those interpretations, it's slavery that's the key. That's what differentiated the South from the North. Uh, for, for my 
for my econometric or quantitative friends, the way I put it is, it's interesting that you run regressions on all sorts of stuff in the South, and in the United States, North and South, and it turns out that the South always kicks out as being different. But if you put slavery in there, it picks up everything, and it's slavery that's different, not the South itself. In other words, there's a lot about the South that is much like the rest of the United States, but the slaves make it different in a big way as far as economic and social structures are concerned. But there are a lot of arguments, I mean, over the decades, indeed, that slavery is as much a, a social as it is an economic institution. That, that, and, and I think that's true. I, I'm, you know, you, you, can't, you can't wash race and class out of it. it it's, there's, there's, there's no doubt whatsoever. What, what makes American slavery so peculiar, because I don't know of any other society that carried it to the extent that we did, is this way, the way in which we took something that you can find all over the world in the night, as late as the 19th century, which is structures of indebted or indentured or enslaved labor. But nowhere did they carry it to the economic extreme where we're literally buying and selling and placing a value on this stuff. I mean, all sorts of people had slaves in Brazil, all through the New World, in the Old World, goes way back into the ancient world. But very few societies went around saying, my, worth, my slave is worth 800 bucks. But we did. And we bought and sold them in, as they call it, chattel labor. And what that did was to build into the system the value of slaves as, as a form of wealth. And this, it, it, it gets very involved, but basically you have to, to see this as something that becomes an insoluble problem if people are threatened, and, and I keep trying to come up with a way of explaining this to my students in the modern world, and the, and the closest I can think of is, is, is home ownership in the United States. Suppose the, suppose the government started threatening to take everybody's home away. Well, home repre, homes represent a major share of American wealth. That's why this housing crisis is such a, such a mess, right? Makes such a mess of things. And imagine that Slaves to the Southerners are like home ownership is today to us. And the, if you curtail that, if you take away the interest exemption, if you do a variety of things to curtail people's ability to, to own their own home, that would be a major, major, major economic, social blow to the whole society. And that's the way it was in the South as far as slaves is concerned. And, and, of course, uh, and like slaves, homes also have uh, a strong emotional uh, connection for individuals. What we're going to do right now uh, is take okay. a short break. We're going to come back in just a minute. Our guest is Roger L. Ransom, author of The Confederate States of America, What Might Have Been. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. How does one make a counterfactual history pudding? 
take two parts historical plausibility, one part common sense, one part imagination, and mix them well. We'll do that when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Roger Ransom, author of The Confederate States of America, What Might Have Been. It's a counterfactual history of the Civil War, imagining what might have happened uh, differently. Uh, could the Confederacy have won the war? In our first segment, we talked about the, uh, the the irrepressibility of the Civil War. Could it have been avoided, or was the difference between the, the slave economy and society of the South uh, too great from that of the North uh, to avoid some sort of conflict at some point? Um, Roger, one of the things I really uh, was interested in as I read this book was uh, you began first addressing this irrepressibility question, and I was uh, expecting uh, it being counterfactual for some kind of argument that, no, this was not uh, uh, irrepressible. It could have gone this way or that way or the other way. Uh, but you stay very close to the line there, as, as we were discussing well, a minute ago. Well, there's a reason for that, and that is that what I'm actually doing here, one of the things about the whole book is predicated on that it's not one counterfactual question when you ask what is what would have happened if the South won the Civil War? It's a bunch of them. And the counterfactual that I'm actually addressing, the hidden counterfactual here, uh, is what if there'd been no war? Because if there'd been no war, then the book becomes irrelevant. <laughs> so I, I had to deal with what actually happened. It's like what actually happened was probably going to happen, that, that it's not very realistic to try and counterfactual that away. And I think there's several other, I mean, the next question I come up against, uh, that, that we'll get to in a minute, is, is another one of those, could the South have ever won that war? And there are people who, who and, and the economists in particular, who deal with this question, they have an easy way to deal with it. They say, well, the counterfactual to the Civil War is no war. And that way they calmly sweep under the rug the whole, the whole mess. And then they can go on with their economic models. And, in fact, if you look at uh, many of the economic textbooks that were written uh, prior to the 1970s in particular, it's exactly what they do. They go up to 1860, and they say, then there was a terrible war. And that war was very costly, and we'll pick the story up in 1865. <laughs> 
and off and running we go. <laughs> so um, that was the, that was. I didn't. I don't think I made that as clear as some people might have thought. We stick. We stick to the real path here because we don't think there is a plausible counterfactual of there's no war. But that my um, my economic history friends sort of say, well, you know, why do you go through all of that? Because that is the obvious counterfactual. But I say, no, you see, it's not. So then we have to take up the next question. And the next question is, I'm asking, what if the South could win the war? And I'm sure many of your listeners know that there is a vast group of people out there, and I encountered some of them just a couple of uh, months ago, uh, when I was in North Carolina for a, a conference on uh, the New South, and uh, several people confronted me with the argument, Roger, there's no way they could have won that war. So I have to take up the question of the lost cause as a, uh, a, a question that, well, if you, if you believe that, then obviously the rest of the book, again, it's, is irrelevant. And sometimes in counterfactual history, what we have to do is say, it's got to be a realistic, and it's got to be something that is going to happen if it's going to be a useful counterfactual. In in my recipe at the uh, beginning of the book, I say it's two parts reality and one part imagination. <laughs> well, I, I think you do a, a really interesting job with that. The book almost anticipates uh, objections as, as you go. Um, I mean, to start with, uh, as historians will often uh, say amongst ourselves when talking about economists, you know, an economist solution to, uh, uh, for example, how do we uh, get off the desert island? Well, assume we have a boat. Precisely. Uh, that, yeah, that is and, exactly the mentality. Yes, uh, so we can't do that in history. We have to. We have to have the boat. We have to have evidence of the boat before we can talk about a right. boat. Well, you. So you don't just blow off the Civil War. You say if we're going to assume it didn't happen, we can't do that. We have to show how it might have happened differently. Then you very carefully uh, you address, as you say, the lost cause argument. Uh, well, the North is so big, so many people. Uh, no way the war could have gone differently. And uh, what I'd like to talk about here and ask you about is is this very carefully constructed scenario that you've put together uh, of how the war could have gone differently. Because when I began reading it, um, my first objection, and, and I'll, I'll let you address this as, as you do in the book, my objection was going to be, uh, if you look at most battle histories of the Civil War, they tend to follow the same pattern. The attackers break through the enemy line. Uh, they're just about to win the decisive battle of the war, but a brave small unit on a hill or a forest yep. stops them at the last second, and, and what could have been decisive isn't. And it happens with you know, Stonewall Jackson at Manassas and Hazen's Brigade at the Round Forest and Chamberlain on Little Round Top. And everywhere you go, there, there's, there's the indecisive battle that could have been. After about the 30th one of those, it's time to say maybe that's the pattern. And none of these battles are decisive. And so I'm, as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, well, he's going to make Chamberlain not hold a little round top, and that'll change the whole war, and that's nonsense. But that's not what you do at all. You don't have it hinge on any one battle. No, that, that's the first big point I make, is that we've got to start by understanding that the South wasn't going to win this war on the basis of a single battle. Uh, the two battles that everybody picks on, originally it was Gettysburg, and we can get mm -hmm. to Gettysburg in a moment. Uh, now I think... 
led perhaps by by the current dean of of economic historians Jim McPherson, it's Antietam, mm-hmm. which is a which in in my view is a much more plausible. Uh, basically, the South has to win this is is going to most likely win this war early rather than late, or something early is going to determine their victory. And I actually wind wound up after I, I pondered this for a long time and bounced it off my students. I wound up with Shiloh actually being the uh, the turning point because in a in a very real sense, unless the South does something to hold the West. They're not going to win this war under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. I, I love to tell my students, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to start a, another quarter of Civil War teaching here, and I always start out telling them, you know, when the, the Civil War ended at Appomattox, Sherman's army was only about 200 miles somewhere down in North Carolina, uh, and Sherman's army was the army of the West, and that is bad news for the Confederacy. <laughs> You know they, that that they they didn't hold it, and so I have uh, my first step is is really to to change the battle of Shiloh enough so that the uh, I'm not going to have the Confederates blow the Union off the map and and clear out the West. They're going to lose the Mississippi Valley under any circumstances. But if you look at the at, at the at the Civil War, even in 1864, there's still a vast part of the Confederacy that's untouched. And they, the Confederates needed to have consolidated and at least held the western two-thirds of their country. So you're right. We, we, we start out by saying there have got to be some battles. I don't, have, I don't turn Antietam into a great victory because I don't think it could have. The odds were simply too great for Lee to have won a decisive victory. They was outnumbered two to one, and it was just by a combination of luck and, you and Lee's and Jackson's skill that, that they extricated their army uh, from Antietam in the first place. But Antietam doesn't want to be the huge bloodbath that it was. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and there's a convenient way to, tr- everyone loves Antietam because there's such a convenient way to turn it around, and that is, what if McClellan didn't find Lee's orders? Yes, if, if uh, that's perfectly plausible. If McClellan doesn't turn into a, for McClellan at least, a, a speedy general all of a sudden, Lee has time enough to do whatever it was he wanted to do in Antietam. It's not entirely clear because in, in both of his invasions, Lee's main main idea was just to go campaign and raise hell in the north. And uh, he would have had time to do that. He would have His army wouldn't have been quite as battered. And so Antietam turns into not a stunning Confederate victory, but it certainly isn't a Union uh, victory either, which takes away the Emancipation Proclamation. It does. And, I mean, all your changes are are really quite minor, as you say, taking away the orders that McClellan found. If we go back to Shiloh for a moment, uh, the changes that you make, as I recall, one is that you have Forrest, Escaping with more men from Fort Donaldson than he originally did. Yeah, you got you got it. That's right. It was the toughest. It was the toughest of the three, actually. You're but right. That's, that's got, not an unreasonable supposition. I, I, I'm a Westerner myself in terms of, of Western theater history of, of arguing that's where the decisive battles took place, and by simply having Forrest. Uh, stay on the loose and then slow up Buell's march, and it didn't take much to slow down Don Carlos Buell. Uh, exactly. The, you, you've got to remember that. It, most people don't realize what an enormously close call that was that Buell even got there. I mean, he gets there the night after the first day of the battle. The very nick of time. You can't cut it any closer than that. You only have to slow him up by 12 or 13 hours, and Grant is in deep, deep trouble. 
And and then you have Sherman wounded by a stray bullet, which certainly could have happened. Right. And uh, and you just get a different outcome. Grant has to retreat. Not and, not at all implausible. You know, to give to give him his due, the guy who actually planted that firmly in my mind was McKinley Cantor. Yes. Who wrote a book in 1960, What If the South Won the War? And he, he actually has Grant get killed. He has both Grant and Sherman get knocked off at Shiloh. Mm-hmm. And that really planted in my mind, even though he then reverts to the usual and has a stunning victory at, at Gettysburg, uh, McCanter's book, uh, uh, Cantor's book is, is, is really uh, a, won- a wonderful job of setting the table. He, I, he, doesn't, he doesn't play it out quite the way I, I do, but I, I got much of my inspiration was from him. Yeah, the pattern is recognizable, but yours is very subtle. Uh, as you say, Shiloh is a narrow-run victory uh, for the Confederacy, and Antietam is still a, a more or less a bloody tactical draw, but not quite as bad. And allows Lee to basically raise some trouble and really mess up the political side of things, uh, even though he doesn't come away with a big uh, military victory. That's right. And, and then you still have uh, Grant in the West, uh, is demoted after Shiloh, which really happened, and then he comes back and eventually does take Vicksburg. He just takes it in November instead of July of '63. That's right. So you've only got a few months difference, but it makes all the difference in the world as you right. play it out. Right. And I don't see any way that that the South is going to hold onto the Mississippi River, given the given the the ability of the of the Union Navy to control the rivers. Now I think that's that's one of the things that that it, it's. That's again. That's that's my dose of reality in the West. They're going to lose the Mississippi, but the the North, on the other hand, is not likely to penetrate very much if the South just manages to put up a good front along the the Mississippi and the Tennessee rivers, which is which is the way I have the West playing out, so to speak. It, uh, as as we're talking here now, uh, actually not this week because it's spring break here at East Carolina, but. Most Friday afternoons, there's a group of graduate students and a few faculty who meet in one of the conference rooms, and they uh, set up elaborate board games of military events in the yeah. past, um, a hobby that I have participated in myself. Uh, I wonder what your familiarity or, or thought is of that. Uh, as I was reading your book, it was like watching uh, two players replay the Civil War in one of these games and having it come out a little different. Well, I, I, I don't, I didn't play a board game. I, I did have, the, years ago, there was a, a, a game called Gettysburg. Yes. A board game called Gettysburg. And I did play that often. <laughs> it, it's still out there. And I used to, as a, as a kid, in the, in the inside jacket of my book, there's a picture of me with some lead soldiers. Yes. And I got my first lead soldiers when I was 10. And I used to play with them endlessly, not, not necessarily in the Civil War, but making up scenarios and saying, oh, this guy could do that, and this guy could do that. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I, I confess that I'm not really uh, uh, that steeped in the, the real details of military history, but I, I, love to, I love to play strategy. I love to say, well, suppose this theater had turned out different, or suppose this had gone a little bit different that way, and all there are ways we can tweak this without having to resort to um, just strokes of fortune. You, you can always use a stroke of fortune, because that's always right. present. Clausewitz is, is right. It's, war is a great gamble. But can, can you tweak things enough to 
to make things just gradually twist your way to the point where not just the military, but ultimately the military and social. And that's what I was trying to do. And, and I did play through the board games, and, and the, the one I, where I came closest to playing the board game was, of course, Gettysburg. It's the one battle yeah. that I actually go so far as to develop a uh, an actual... I, I decided I had to come up with an actual story, not just this sort of speculation, oh, it could have been this, could have been, but come down and, and show that Gettysburg is, is one of the reasons it is such a... a I, I don't know what word to use, disputed or, or con- controversial battle, is it could have gone so many ways, yeah. so many ways. And one of the things that really encouraged me uh, or got me really going on Gettysburg is is there is a book on the Battle of Gettysburg by Peter, oh dear, I'm, I'm missing his name now, it's not coming to me, uh, but he he doesn't have it turn into a southern victory. He has it turn into a complete Confederate disaster. Hmm. And he has Lee ultimately captured. Uh, and it's it's a it reminded me what what that and and he did it by just having a few things go a little differently, just as I do. I mean, I have it all come down to Culp's Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they'd taken Culp's Hill, they could have. Um, it would have it would have basically prevented that question mark or fish hook or whatever you want to call it. The northern end of that would have would have been taken away, and that means the center of the of the the Union line as we know it would have been threatened from the back by by uh, Confederate troops coming down off of of Coles Hill. And the, the the this book that that, that I'm referring to, Gettysburg, that's the uh, title. Peter Turris. Turris, that's right. Yeah. Peter Turris. That book reminded me that there are a lot of other points where you could have turned it into a Confederate disaster. And you could also turn it into a Union disaster. I didn't turn it into quite the disaster. The famous, the, the favorite way for turning it into a, a Union disaster is to have Pickett's Charge work. But that's the classic mistake, to me at least, that you couldn't just change Pickett's Charge. By the time it actually happened, Pickett's Charge, in my opinion, was a lost cause. I, I would certainly share that opinion, and we're going to take another short break and talk more about some of these things that could have gone differently. Our guest today is Roger Ransom. His book is The Confederate States of America. This is Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. What if the South had won the Civil War? How would the rest of the century have played out? What would have happened to the slaves? Would their countries have reunited? We'll ask these questions and more of our guest, Roger Ransom, author of Confederate States of America, What Might Have Been, on Civil War Talk Radio. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, 
taken into our bodies and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today we're talking with the author of The Confederate States of America, What Might Have Been. He is Roger L. Ransom, recently retired from the University of California, Riverside, uh, a legend in American economic history, and the author of this really fascinating look, uh, counterfactual look at the Civil War. Uh, in our second segment, we looked at how the Civil War might have played out differently through 1863 with just a few changes. And, Roger, that, as I said earlier, it's something I really uh, was taken by with this book was how subtle the changes need to be. I've had people ask me uh, typically, uh, you know, what if Chamberlain hadn't held Riddle Roundtop, Lee could have taken Washington. My answer would be no, Lee could have taken Cemetery Ridge then, but he's got a long way to go to Washington. The Union Army would just fall back to Pipe Creek and he'd fight another battle. You have the Confederates win Gettysburg, but that's all that happens. The Union Army falls back, fights another battle uh, or two. It's not wiped out on the field. There's no Waterloo. There's no uh, decisive battle, but it's enough to get us to the 1864 election. Well, and, and you you took the words right out of my mouth. The whole thing is a prelude to what I think is the one immutable thing that has to happen if the South is to get out of this war uh, on a, with some level of success, and that's Lincoln has to lose the election of 1860. There has to be an election in 1864, and Lincoln has to lose it. That's the whole the whole thing sweeps up to that because the more I thought about it, and the more I I, I read not only military but political, social accounts, and so forth, the more it really comes down to that. It's not just Lincoln all by himself, but Lincoln and his administration, Seward and Chase and the and the bunch of them, uh, they're the ones who are willing to press on, even as it turns out, in the face of of some considerable reverses. Because although they won a lot of battles, the Union was having a tough time actually winning the war. That's the hard part of all of this. And if if Gettysburg had gone wrong, and if and if just just a, a few more breaks there. Uh, Lincoln might have lost the election, and if Lincoln loses the election, he's going to lose it. And and again, it's not hard, I think, for for recent students to understand all this with regard to the business in Iraq and so forth. A change in the administration is going to bring about a change in the view of how you deal with the war. Yeah, and, and, and uh, I mean, you present that uh, clearly that, that now we have a different. Uh, it, it's Horatio Seymour who who replaces Lincoln, I believe. Yeah, I had a hard time coming up with who it should be. But I knew it couldn't be McClellan any more than it could be Lincoln. No. McClellan wasn't going to solve the problem either. And I, I, I give the American electorate credit for figuring that out in 1864. 
but yeah, and and there I'll, I'll I'll tip my hat to a, to a, one of the the great uh, counterfactualists of our time, Harry Turtledove. Uh, because he actually he he wrote a book called Guns of the South, and this is this is what I call alternative history rather than counterfactual history. He has science fiction, and and uh, those of you who are familiar with the book, that Lee gets automatic weapons and a bunch of stuff, and he and he wins the war. But the part of that book that that, that made an impression upon me is Harry actually went and constructed a careful analysis of the election of eighteen sixty four having Horatio Seymour win. And uh, one of the things about a historian is you should never be afraid to utilize good work of other people when they've accomplished what you want to accomplish. And so I I just took Harry's, Harry's idea, and, and uh, it fit into uh, uh, my model very, very well, and, and Seymour seemed like a, like a, you know, a reasonable choice. And and a, a fee, it's a feasible way. You actually can go back and look at the at the precinct level, which is what Turtle Dove does. Uh, and so, look here's here's the way the vote would have gone. Now you mentioned uh, using other people's visions of this, and, and obviously you mentioned McKinley Cantor earlier, Harry Turtle Dove. Yep. Um, have you seen the film CSA? Oh yes. Uh, In what, fact, I, I saw it? the film and I met Kevin. I'm terrible with last names. The fellow at Kansas who did it. I'm drawing a blank also. Yeah. <laughs> but if you, I'll tell you, readers, if you go to Amazon, they sell the video of the Confederate States of America along with my book. That's, you know, how they have the little plus. That's right. This. You can also, that's so, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a very different brand of counterfactual, uh, history. And, uh, I mean, I love it. I, I think it's, it's great, but it's, it's, it's written, counterfactual history, if you're serious about it, is, I think, written with a particular agenda. I mean, Turtle Dove has a, has a, in, in his stuff, he has an agenda that leads all the way up to World War II and a new, a new, a new world. Uh, and in the process of doing that, he's showing some things about America, I think, that are, that are important. And, and this is what, Kevin um, Wilmot. Wilmot. Kevin Wilmot's objective. Yeah. He's really trying to. Sh- he actually turns things so far on its head that the South actually takes over the North. And that, on the one, at one level, that violates every tenet I have of counterfactual history, mm-hmm. in that it is totally absurd and un- unreasonable to expect. But his idea is not so much for reality's sake, as to show some of the underlying social and racial beliefs that were in the North as well in the South. Uh, and, and what he has, of course, is, is that slavery actually takes over in the North as well as in the South. He, he agrees with, with me in one sense and, and with uh, uh, Seward, that, uh, and, and I guess Lincoln with his house divided, that you can't have a, a, a country split so the North takes over slavery. Uh, it's 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 counterfactual history with a very different purpose behind it. Uh, I commend I actually commend it to your to your listeners. It's it's a it's a very it's a very good video. And uh, the other thing he turns to that that I very much eschew uh, is he, he uses comedy. Yes, there are some funny there are some hilarious scenes in, in there are in, uh, in in that uh, in that video. Uh, and the other. The other video that I meant to mention is Newt Gingrich and Bill Fortune of, he's also in North Carolina. 
they published a three-book series on the end of the war from Gettysburg to the end that uh, I think is, is, is interesting. They come, they come out with a very different conclusion than I do. They, they have the South still losing the war. Hmm. But uh, it, it is an it, it, it is a, it is an inter, interesting enterprise that illustrates a point you made earlier. But but they give into it, which is no matter how many battles the South could win, they were going to lose that war. Mm-hmm. The, the statement that I always quote from Ken Burns's uh, video on the Civil yeah. War. I, I regard Shelby Foote as the last great vestige of the lost cause because he he literally says at some point. That it was no matter what, no matter what, how many more battles the South won, the North fought that battle with one hand and brought, and brought the other hand out. Would have brought the other hand out and crushed the South no matter what. And I think that misses a lot of the dynamics of the way wars are. It's it's not true that the most powerful always wins just because they're powerful. And the North was in a situation where they they could easily just said, oh, let's just forget it. And that would have been if Lincoln lost the election, or when Lincoln lost the election. Now, whereas the, the CSA video, as you point out, has slavery uh, spreading into the north, uh, this brings us back full circle where we started our right, conversation right. with the south uh, abolishing slavery by the end of the 19th century. Yeah, and I, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which I wish that the that I had waited another year and a half or two years for the book to come out because I could have drawn upon this housing crisis. The story I tell is that slavery would have disappeared because the price of cotton would have plummeted and the price of slaves would have fallen. And as the price of slaves fell, slaveholders would gradually have decided they really needed to get rid of their slaves. But with falling prices, nobody's going to buy them. And the government's going to have to come in and rescue the slaveholders. A bailout. A bailout, precisely. I never even thought of that term. Ah. But if I had it now, I, I should. If if I do ever put a, <laughs> put a new edition, on, I'm going to say, look. If you want to interpret how this all would work, uh, all you have to do is is substitute the word bailout for emancipation buyout, and you've got it. Because it's exactly the same sort of problem. The problem is assets are collapsing very quickly, and as they be, as they collapse. Because the price of cotton did collapse after the Civil War. As the cotton market collapses and the slave markets collapse, slaveholders would have ultimately decided that compensated emancipation was the perfect solution. And you've got to dream up, uh, get a president in there who is willing to basically support that idea, much as... You know, Mr. Obama is willing to run his deficits endlessly. Well, that's what the Confederate government was going to have to do to bail out the slaves. They were going to have to give the slaveholders bonds, but that would have provided exactly the capital and liquidity, maybe, to help jumpstart the Confederate re jumpstart the Confederate economy. Because to, to be uh, clear now, to the readers, I, I, went to, I went over that very fast. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but but I, that's an excellent point. I just want to make sure our, our listeners know um, that you also stress, though, that this emancipation would be done with with firm uh, legal and social constraints that would create a 
Jim oh, Crow yeah. society far stricter than the one that actually occurred. Well, remember the cons- the the emancipation that that I'm putting forward is not an emancipation of people who were opposed to slavery for moral reasons or whatever, and and wanting to get rid of it. It is the the slaveholders themselves trying to transfer get get out from under the debt, but they still want a labor force that is servile and and uh, basically indentured. Uh and so yes, you you would have had you would have had a very different world for blacks. I mean, the 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 one really unequivocal thing about the solution the world that I come up with is that African Americans would have lost very heavily in in my world. If, yeah. There's no 13th amendment, no 14th or 15th no, amendment. No. There's no uh you have something you have, you have something just to the right of South Africa on racial policy there. Now, ironically, uh, uh, just to, to push it to the end, and I, I hope I'm not spoiling the end, uh, listeners. If you're going to go buy the book right now, you can just save this part and listen later. Um, <laughs> the, we've got three countries. We've got we've got North and South. Uh, we've got the Union, the Confederacy of separate countries, uh, but the rest of the world progresses is one of your underlying themes is that this war is a turning point in world history not just american history yes. and europe uh, bubbles along uh, german the german states coalesce and form an empire britain's empire contests uh, for world supremacy but now instead of america you've got two americas and they get involved in the first world war mm-hmm. uh, the result is not uh, but not on the side you might expect i guess well, yeah, and this again, I, I, I don't mirror Turtle Love, but he, he it was an inspiration. That is how he does it. He uses a very different scheme to get there, but he has the same thing. But you know, um, shortly after the book came out, I was buying a suit down at Nordstrom's, and I was talking to the clerk there, and uh, he, he somehow the book came up, and he asked me what happened. I said, well, let's just say that uh, I'm dealing with a book the South won the Civil War. And this guy looked at me and he said, then we'd all be speaking German, wouldn't we? Mm. Now, I, I thought, I said, you know, most people don't make that connection. That, that's not quite, I don't go quite that far. <laughs> but he, he made the, the connection. Now, I have seen people who have a, an independent confederacy join up with a Nazi Germany in the middle of the 20th century. There, there are some short stories that do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was, again, Turtle Dove who, who got me thinking that if you, if you, if you look at it, the, it's the British who become friendly with the Confederates and the French because intervention is going to, there's going to be at least some intervention that, that the British and the French will help the Confederates break free. And the British and the French are the ones who have the most to gain from a Confederate victory. So they're going to all lock up. And people forget just how deep the animosity between Britain and the parts of the U.S. really was, uh, particularly in the Northeast. Uh, they do, with the, with the, the Irish North. immigration and then the German immigration. Irish and German immigration. And so the more I thought about it, the more I decided that, that this, makes, this makes a good deal of sense. Because the Civil War is a momentous, event in the Western Hemisphere, but it's not going to basically shake up the geopolitical situation in, the, in Europe. Not, not immediately, it's not. Well, 
Roger, I apologize that we have run out of time, as always happens too soon on this show, but especially today. Uh, I really enjoyed reading this book, and I know our listeners will too, and I want to thank you very much for being on the show. Okay, and I'll just leave you with one little part sure. of my next book, which is titled Gambling on War from Bismarck to Bush. That sounds intriguing also. Uh, thanks again for being on. You're welcome. Thank you. Li- listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk.